Together, we're considering the promise of Christmas. Last week, we learned that, that though the world is dark, a light has come. The way that John, the gospel writer, speaks of Jesus' birth is to say that a light has come into the darkness, and then there's a promise. That is, that the darkness will not overcome the light. This morning, I want to think with you about the darkness and especially how Christians have addressed the problem of evil and suffering in the world. I want to do that for two reasons. Partly because I know for sure that in one way or another, all of us will have our lives touched at one time by suffering. And sometimes that kind of suffering, which is so utterly senseless, whether it is because of an evil person or some kind of disease that strikes and robs life, will be touched by evil ourselves. That's one reason why I want to address it. The other reason I want to address it is, is my conviction that Christians have often done a very poor job in thinking about the problem of evil and suffering. And that in itself, well, that in itself leads to more hurt where there ought to be healing, and sometimes it pushes good people far away from God, not because of anything true in God himself, but because, well, because of the inadequacy of our way of talking about evil and suffering. Have you yourself ever experienced something like this? None of you so much so that you've decided not to come to church on Sundays anymore because here you are. But it often happens that the result of bad answers is pushing people far away. In 2010, I was in my favorite coffee shop in Red Bank, and I saw a man getting coffee um, who was very strong and severe looking, and he had a t-shirt on, and he turned around, and I saw that it had a red circle on it with an X over a cross. And it said at the top, Christianity is stupid. And then underneath, give up. And so naturally, I did what anyone would do. I walked right up to him and said, excuse me. <laughs> I said, I'm a Christian do you believe what it says there on your shirt? And he was quite surprised that I came uh, up to him like that, but then he gathered himself and he said in an aggressive way, yes, I do. And I said, well, I'm a Christian and what I would like is to understand why you think that. Would you be willing to let me take you out to coffee another time and I could listen to you? He didn't believe me. He said, no, you want to convert me and I'll save you the time. It will not work ever no need for coffee. And I assured him that, no, I really do want to understand. And then I told him, I happen to be not just a Christian, but a pastor. And I think it would be professional help for me to understand why people think like you do. Would you be willing to tell me? We went back and forth on email after that first conversation. And eventually we ended up meeting at that same coffee shop. Now I sat down with him. And for the first three or four minutes, he gave me that, that sort of stereotyped, uh, list of reasons why Christians have done all kinds of bad things in history. You've heard that list too, right? But it only took three or four minutes for him to get through that. And I didn't fight. I just took notes. For him then to tell me about what happened to his brother. His brother went to church. His brother's wife left him. His brother then was ostracized by the church that he used to go to. At the very time when he needed God's help the most, he got a message from the church which basically said, you've done something wrong and now you're going to be punished for it. As if God was against people who have to go through that kind of personal difficulty. And then, then his brother became ill. Cancer. 
And now the only people from the church who came to talk to his brother while he was there caring for him came with a message that sounded to him like God wanted you to have cancer. Uh, reassuring statements like, well, this is just God's plan. And you have to accept God's purpose for your life. And God is still good. And this, this struck John, that's his name, John as particularly bad. And so he decided there's nothing to this faith. And not only did he distance himself and his brother from the very church that ought to have in that moment showed the truth of what we talked about last, not, uh, last week. Uh, gosh, it, it seems like last night I was preaching about this. <laughs> what we talked about last week, which is that the light has come into the darkness. Instead of showing him that, it showed him the opposite, which was to say that the light is not for you and the darkness, well, that's God. The darkness in your brother's life and in your life, that's God. And so he became an advocate for the very opposite of, of the truth that God is good, which is he, he became a person who tried to pull other people away. And I don't blame him. But here's what I want you to know this morning. What he was pulling others away from and himself away from was not the truth of the promise of Christmas at all. It was a, a, a version of Christian faith which should be rejected. And I want to show that this morning. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to think. Okay, we're going we're gonna to think to try to grasp uh, understanding that has intellectual integrity. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said, some of you will know this, that we should love God with all of our hearts and soul, our strength, and also our minds. We're going to try that, and we're going to try to do that in a way that makes sense, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts when we face darkness, as many of us will. So this morning, we're going to start on the Gospel of Matthew. Now, last week, we looked at how John described the coming of Jesus. This morning, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to keep in mind this single sentiment. Here it is, the light has come. That's what we learned last week, that the light has come. And, and here's what happens in Matthew's telling of the Gospel. I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of set it up for you, and then I want you to listen to this story to see if you can hear where the light is, all right? In case you don't know, uh, Mary, the young girl, uh, becomes pregnant. And... Uh, she's not been with her fiancé, Joseph. And so his assumption is that she must have been unfaithful. And so he decides to do something kind, which is to dismiss her quietly. That is to divorce her without humiliating her. And we have our own sentimental understanding of the Christmas story. But if we were to set that aside, we'd say, this is dark. This poor couple. But then Joseph goes to sleep. He decides to sleep on his decision. And while he's sleeping, a divine messenger, and that's what angel means, comes to him and says, do not leave Mary. Because in this darkness that you face, this is what God says, there's the light of a plan that I'm up to and my presence is going to be there and I have a purpose, so don't dismiss her. And then the angel says this, and here's what I want you to do as I read it. See if you can hear the light in it and then we'll dwell on this for a bit. The angel says to Joseph of Mary, she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. After hearing this, Joseph wakes up, and he chooses not to go through with the divorce, and into that personal darkness for Joseph and Mary comes this light, 
which rescues them from an otherwise miserable situation. And, and I want you to see with me the, the beams of light which come into this darkness. But first, before we look at that story, would you think of your own situation for just a moment and whatever the darkness is that you yourself face? Maybe last week, the promise that there was light coming was good, but there wasn't enough specificity yet for you. Listen again and look at the light that comes into this moment with Joseph's situation and Mary's situation. Because there are at least three beams of light that I think are quite powerful. The first one comes when the narrator says this of what's happening. That is, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord. That is to say, what's happening here, Joseph, is not random chance or accident, even though it feels like it to you, but rather it is something which is a part of God's plan. And this beam of light comes, and I would call it the beam that is God's plan. Joseph, as many of us will experience, faced a moment in life where it seemed utterly impossible that this could be anything else or other than a complete and total breakdown of everything good. But here comes the angel saying, there's actually a divine plan that has been in the works for a long time. You haven't felt God's presence for as long as you can remember. Yes, but trust me, there's something even still which is unfolding and it's a part of God's plan. That's the first bit of light that comes to Joseph. Do you see it? If you see it, verbalize it because I feel very lonely up here. Okay, thank you. That, that'll count. There's a second sort of message which is like light. Again, whatever you think about God. I want you to put that here and I want you to get this story because otherwise you can't have a Christian answer to this problem. The second beam of light comes when the message adds this, that is that God is with us in this plan. Now that's an immensely significant phrase. Emmanuel, the Hebrew word, translates God is with us and the angel says this is what they will call him because this baby who is born, who is a part of God's plan, which has been in the works for a long time, is not just any, any old baby. This is God with us. And this awakens for Joseph, surely, the generations-old hope of God's people that, that they would be rescued from their misery when God himself would finally stop being so distant but would come right up and be their God with them like a shepherd with the sheep. Have any one of you ever wished that God felt closer than he feels? Of course. And here is the second beam of light in the Christmas story, which is saying, well, here he is. Maybe not what anyone had expected, but there he is. God is with us. That's the second beam of light. And then the third beam of light is in this phrase that is what will happen because of this baby. He will save his people. And this is the light of God's purpose. The plan that is unfolding in the birth of this child, who is not just any child, but is God with us, has this purpose, which is that God would save. Some of us who are gathered in this place this morning are very aware of our need to be saved. And so this seems very pertinent. Others of us are doing well. And there are plenty of people around us who are strong and confident and successful. And there's nothing wrong with being any of those things. Uh, let me say this morning, we can say why we need to be saved another time. For now, the consistent message of the scriptures is that every one of us, whether we're successful or faltering, needs to be saved from our sin. And here the story says there is light in what's happening with this baby that has come into the darkness. And it's the light of God's plan, God's presence, and God's purpose. Yes, they all start with the letter P. And I did that on purpose. <laughs> but here it is. 
The light says that what's, what's happening in this darkness is God's plan and that God himself is here with us and that there's a good purpose for it. Now, the story of Christmas does not end here. Just as the story of our lives surely are not captured by just this because there's plenty of darkness around us which it's hard to make sense of this truth beside that darkness. I'm telling the truth, yes? In the Gospel of Matthew, if you read beyond the first chapter, you come to what I would say is one of the darkest stories in the Bible. It's a story of what happens with King Herod. I alluded to it last week. I want to tell you that story in more detail now. Listen, the truth about the Bible is that the people who are skeptics, like that man John that I had coffee with, the Bible can often sound like a bunch of made-up stories. But what you must know about Herod, the king of Judea at the time that Jesus was born, is that he was a real man. You don't just read about him in the Bible, you read about him in the history books because the empire of Rome put him in the position of being the king of Judea because he was such a politically savvy man and because he was horrendously wicked. And that made for a good political leader in that time frame. Uh, not only can you read about his exploits outside of the Bible, you could go to Jerusalem and see the remains of the palace where he lived and from, from which he ruled. And the story in Matthew's gospel is that after this baby was born, there were some magi from the east. You know, the wise men. These were astrologers who had been studying the heavenly signs because they were convinced that the world was not as it should be and they hoped desperately that God would send some kind of solution to the darkness and they saw a solution in a star that appeared. And let me tell you, all around us are people who know that the world is not as it should be and are desperate for some kind of divine solution and are looking every which way to find a sign that maybe God has come. And these men see the sign in the star. They follow that star all the way to the city of Jerusalem and they make their way to Herod's palace. And they tell him, we've come from far away because we want to pay homage to the child who will be the king at his birth. Would you try to imagine hearing this if you were Herod? You will say, I'm the king and I'm not a baby. And anyone who claims to be king is thereby my enemy. And so what Herod does is he says to the wise men, oh, I'm thankful that you're going to pay homage to him. I would also like to honor him. When you find out where he is, would you text me his location? <laughs> right? Would you let me know where he is? Not because he wants to go honor him, but because he wants to go destroy him. Because Herod does not want this light to come. And this is what happens. The wise men know that Herod is going to try to destroy Jesus. They intervene so that it doesn't work. And what Herod does is recorded in chapter 2 of Matthew, verse 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. Look at this. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. This is not just genocide, it's infanticide. It's a man who has power, using that power to destroy the most vulnerable and beloved, beloved members of the community. And only a person who has lost a child can even dare to imagine the grief. But now that grief has visited all of the families in that region who have children who are two years old or under. All of the families in that region, except for one family, 
the family of Mary and Joseph. Because even though all the other children die, their son, who is the single target of Herod's wickedness and evil, and though I haven't defined the word evil in this time, which we could use three or four messages to do, for now can we just say evil is that senseless erasure of human life. It is anti-life, and it's all around us, isn't it? In attitudes and actions. But here, the one who is meant to be the target of Herod's evil escapes while all the other children don't. So that many die despite one who lives. And this puts upon us the question which we might want to run away from, but which I would say to have intellectual integrity and honesty we cannot run away from. Why? Why would God, why would God allow this? If God is good and powerful, what about those families? Could we go into one of their living rooms with our statements about who God is? Our well-meant cliches to bring comfort and say them out loud or not? And what I want is to find a way of talking about the problem of evil with you that works intellectually here, but also in a place like that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put up four of the, the solutions that people have advanced to the problem of suffering and evil, which we will say are inadequate. And I'm going to ask you to think with me now. Agreed? Here, I have selected a single word to capture, uh, in effect, different ways of thinking about the problem. And I will say right up front, these are overly simplified, but for our purposes this morning, they'll have to do. The first solution, which I would say is inadequate to the problem of suffering and evil, is the, the solution that I would call illusion. Now, there is a solution to the question of evil and suffering, which says the heart of the problem is not out there, it's actually all in here. That is, everything is what you make of it in your mind. And this may sound to you like a strange idea, but I'll tell you that there was a very powerful way of thinking about the world that was advanced, that began to grow up in India, and that has spread and has in it much virtue, but which has become a caricature in Buddhism, for instance, in such a way that it teaches in effect that the real trouble with evil and suffering is not anything that happens in your circumstances. It all comes back to how you think. Everything is suffering. That's the first noble truth. And, and, and the reason for suffering is attachment. That's the second noble truth. And, and the freedom from the kind of attachment that causes the things out there to make you suffer is to recognize that if you would only let go of your expectations for what you want out there, then and only then would you be free to receive everything happens as if it is just what happens. And then the fourth noble truth, you're on your way to enlightenment and freedom because you've been freed from the lie that all of that misery out there is real and opened up to, to the truth that it's all just in your mind. This may sound very, very foreign and strange. Let me tell you, there are many religious movements in our own country that took this idea and moved forward with it. In the late part of the 19th century, Mary Baker Eddy, a woman in Boston who was very winsome and compelling, began a movement that exists to this very day in most of our downtowns. The, the, the first Christ of, uh, excuse me, the first Church of Christ scientists in the Christian Science Reading Room uh, go into that place and ask them about evil and suffering and they'll tell you. Sickness, sin, evil, and suffering, all of them are errors in your thinking. That's the problem. They're not real. If you just learn to think differently, then you would be free from them. Now, there is a little virtue here, and let me admit it. Many of us 
cause our small problems to become much greater because of the wrong way we think about them. Would you admit that with me? But would you ever dare to take this explanation into a living room where the child's not there and say it's just in your mind? I want to swear out loud right now. I'm serious. Of course not. That is so deeply offensive and awful. No, it's not an illusion. And if you look at Jesus' way, not just after he was a baby, but as he grew up and, and became a man, you'll see him over and over again confronting the reality of evil, which is real. It is real when it robs a person of the plans that they had for their lives in a way that has no sense. It's evil when it causes illness and suffering of every kind. It's evil when it drives a person to death. It's evil and it's real. That's not an okay solution. Can we let go of that one altogether? Okay, here's a second one. It is a solution that I would say boils down to the single word chance. Things happen as they do by chance because God's not involved in the details. If only you would be willing to accept the truth that God did maybe get the whole thing going, but now he watches only from a distance, then you'd be free from the emotional ups and downs that come when you let your well-being depend on things that are outside of your control and outside of the control of any kind of divine being. The solution is to accept that things happen as they do because it's random, and then you'll be free from the emotional misery that comes when things don't go your way. The most famous and robust historical expression of this viewpoint came first from Zeno, the father of Stoicism. 300 years before Jesus was born, that mindset dominated all of the intellectual and cultured life of the Roman Empire all the way up to the third century. If you don't think you've ever been moved by the Stoic viewpoint, have you ever said it is what it is? You've been a tiny bit of a Stoic then. This is the way of saying, look, things just happen. And, and it's not, it's not just Stoics who are ambivalent about whether there is a real personal God or not who think like this, many of us who are Christians, whether we would say it like this or not, have learned to accept what happens as if it has very little to do with God. Because, I'm going to tell you the truth here, because many of us live lives that don't match up with what we say we believe. Because we say we believe God is with us, but our lives day after day don't feel an awful lot like he's anywhere nearby. Isn't that true? And so we might begin to adopt an understanding of the things that don't go right and that are wrong in our lives. We might begin to understand it as chance. It must be that God's just decided not to be involved here at all. And that can be the way we carry it forward. But then doesn't life have a way now and then of showing us that no, God is involved, surprising us with, with what we might have called a coincidence, but now it feels like, no, wait, there is something more going on here. Uh, yes, because if we set it, and let's bring this back up here on the side, if we set that understanding chance against the light that comes from our story, we have to recall that, that the story is a part of God's plan. That the birth that comes unexpectedly to Mary is described by the angel as a part of a plan that God has. Now listen, this does not yet mean that everything that happens is his plan. We'll get to that in solution number four. Hold on. But it does mean that we cannot accept the solution that says, well, look, all the bad stuff is just chance because God's decided to just let it go unless we're willing to reject a lot of what the scriptures tell us. In fact, unless we're willing to let go of the Christmas story, which says here is a divine purpose, a plan, excuse me. So if it's not illusion or chance, 
What are the other options to us? Here is one that I dislike. I'm going to say it right off the bat. But it has an awful lot of prominent voices. It is a solution that says the evil and suffering in the world is plain and simple punishment. Personal suffering is the direct consequence of doing the wrong thing. You reap what you sow. Just as there is an effect that follows every cause in the physical world, there is an effect that corresponds to every cause in the spiritual world. Suffering comes to the one who deserves it. We don't often put it or almost ever put it this blatantly, but many of us live as if this is the case, and our common language often reveals that we kind of think this. Have you ever seen something bad happen to someone and then said, either under your breath or out loud, karma? Have you? Isn't it funny when someone slips on a banana peel? Not to you. To me, that's always funny. If I were sitting where you are, I'd start laughing out loud now. It's always funny. It's even better when that person is a real jerk and they slip on a banana peel. And we say karma, and we, again, we caricature a, a, a very, I think, deep and spiritual idea that grew up in the West that is that good Deeds and thoughts lead to good outcomes just as bad deeds and bad thoughts lead to bad outcomes. And there is a part of our experience in the world that does actually see the truth of this, right? That is when you're mean and awful, eventually it'll catch up to you. And it's not good for not just the people out there, but for you too, just as when you're kind and gracious. Well, something comes of that, yeah? We see that. And so there's a part of this that is true. But what happens is some Christians grab onto this idea, even though they would never say that they, uh, they think that karma is true. And what they do is they find a few passages in Scripture, and there are plenty there, trust me, which depict God as the one who is watching and ready to punish those who are bad, just as he blesses those who are good, and with these scriptures in hand, these religious voices advance a solution to the problem of evil and suffering, which says, there's no problem here. What you're seeing is God punishing us or you for bad behavior. Have you ever heard this expression from a Christian voice? When those towers fell, Pat Robertson, and with him, Jerry Falwell, on U.S. television, they interpreted the events as the result of God's anger at our country because our country had become filled with people who supported abortion and, and, and a homosexual agenda and the ACLU and all kinds of liberal people. And because of that, God's anger happened to succeed through the terrorists as if they were the instrument of God's punishment against us. And not only has this interpretation been advanced through the acts of evil men, but also through natural disasters. Hurricane Katrina, why did it hit New Orleans? There were popular Christian voices that said because it's a city of sin and God is punishing that city. Can this be the solution? Listen, this is a, a subject for another time and I hope that you'll be around when I unfold this subject. I want to. Because I'm telling you, the person who advances this viewpoint has plenty of ammunition from the Bible. But what we have together here is this claim. And remember last week, who is Jesus? He is God with us. If we want to know about God, we have to look at Jesus. The opening of the book of Hebrews says, God used to speak to us in this old way through the prophets, but in these last days, he's chosen to speak to us through the Son, who is God with us, Jesus. What do we see when we look at Jesus about God's attitude toward the sin in the world? Remember how we started the light in the, the story of Matthew says that the light has come is that, that this is what God's purpose was in coming. 
It was not to punish people for their sins. Did you hear why Jesus was born? To save people from. That is exactly the opposite of punishing them for. And I know this opens up another series of questions, and we could get to that another time. But one thing it does now is thankfully shut down this horrendous lie that bad things happen right now to punish people for their sins. Because the story of Christmas tells us that no, God's plan is beginning to be executed in this purpose, which is that he would come in Jesus himself to save people from, which is not to punish them for. Please tell me you see that with clarity. Will you tell me that? Yes, so can we every time any thought occurs to us that maybe this bad thing happened because God is punishing us for our sin, can we say no to that idea? Would we say that? And anytime someone else voices that opinion, oh, well, yeah, they had it coming to them. That's because they're bad. God made it happen. No, that's not who God is. He saves. He does not kill for sin. Now, still, there's more questions from this story, right? Because we can say this in the living room, but we're still left with this last bit in that living room. What about the death of these kids? so that this one could live. Was that a part of God's plan? Here, the fourth solution that I will say is the strongest of all four when someone builds it on what the Bible says, but also one that we are ready to say it's not adequate, is a solution that I would call the blueprint. It's a solution that says everything that happens happens because it was God's will. As if there was a master builder who designed a blueprint exactly as he meant to, with every single detail. And you and I are living in the house that is under construction, and when it's finished, we'll understand. But for now, what looks to us like a mistake is not. It's what the builder designed. Everything that happens is a part of his plan. Not some things, everything. All of the successes, as well as all of the failures. You can't see it yet because you don't know his design. But the truth about the problem of evil and suffering is that the solution is that it all fits God's master plan. No, no. There I am at a funeral for a young man who died of a drug overdose. Just two months earlier, he was at my house on New Year's Eve with his friend, Chris, who was a recovering addict. And the reason that we were all there together is we knew that every other place he could go for Christmas Eve would be a place where he would be tempted to go back into this darkness. And he was doing great. And now the priest says... We don't understand why Jay died. It's just part of God's plan. God wanted him home. Really? I told Chris just a month earlier that God's plan for his friend Jay was to survive drug addiction, to become strong again, and to beat it. And now someone else is saying, well, it was part of God's plan. Which is it? It can't be a part of God's plan. I'm telling you that as loud as I can. I don't usually yell. I just yelled. <laughs> this viewpoint had the, has the power behind it of the mind of Augustine. Does some of you know that name, Augustine? In the fourth century, he became a Christian. He was one of the most powerful thinkers of his day. He had been trained on the philosophy of Hellenism that had these ideas, which are true ideas. God is all-powerful. And that means his will cannot be thwarted because in a fight of wills, it's always the stronger of the two wills which wins out. Therefore, everything that happens is God's will. And then Augustine becomes a Christian. He's influential to Constantine, who changes the official religion of the Roman Empire to Christianity. And then all of the Bible passages that make it look like everything that happens happened because God wants it to happen, and there are plenty of them, become the ones that are used to interpret all of the things which happen in the world. But you know there are some passages 
which are not okay with the idea that everything that happens is God's will. If that's the truth, can we be honest for a minute? Why on earth would Jesus come? Why? He came to save people from their sins. If their sins were a part of his will, why would he come? It doesn't make sense. Do you see it? it of course, it, it raises more questions, but it answers one question. That is that we are free to say absolutely no when someone we loved is not with us in church because they died to the idea that that was God's plan for them. I know that raises more questions, but it does settle one thing. God is not in the business of robbing people of life. He's not. Because here, remember the other bit of light that came through, through the, the interchange between the angel and Joseph? It was that God's presence is here. And now I do want you to do this. And this is not going to answer all our questions because next week I want to try to say some of the positive things that can be said. Because we can't say these things about suffering and evil. And what can we say? Well, here, God's presence. Bring that idea with us into the living room where there's a family saying, what about my child? And, and where they all collectively say, is it God's plan that all of these children should die so that that one child should live? That's a good question. And what we need to say now, I believe, is very simply, those children died because Herod was a madman. That's why they died. And God does not want anyone to do what Herod did because it robs life. And whatever robs life, whether for you it's, it seems like too small a thing to bring into this church because maybe you're robbed of life because of anxiety or things not going your way and you think, well, I'm not supposed to feel that that's especially bad. No, it is. And it's not God's will. It's not. He did not design a life for you where you have to be in anguish. He doesn't. But even if it's the biggest thing, death, if the story ended here in chapter two of Matthew, then it would be a problem for which we couldn't say anything at all. There'd be no promise whatsoever. But you know, this is what the, the New Testament actually says. And whether you believe this or not, I want you to take this into consideration when you judge how the Christian faith speaks to the problem of evil. The story it tells is that while on the one hand it was not God's will that all of those children should die, there was actually in God's will from before all eternity one death that was definitely because he wanted it to happen. And it was the death of one son to free all sons and daughters from death forever. And whether you believe that or not, you have to take that into account when you make your judgment about how Christian faith speaks to the problem of evil. It does say this. It says not only here, but to you, the story's not done yet. It says that. And it feels like you're in the midst maybe of, of a part of the story that you don't want to be in. And of course not, because God's grace and love and power is broken with you over the misery that you have to face because sin and evil and wickedness and suffering is not a part of his plan. But what he's chosen to do is not just to send someone else, but in Jesus become the son who does in fact die according to God's purposes and plan from before all eternity. Is there some part of the message which is his plan? Yes, God's presence with us so he could be the one who dies for the many is most certainly a part of his plan. And that is some light, maybe not light that takes away the grief and misery right now, but it is light that speaks of a promise down the road. And there's one other thing I want to add. And maybe this isn't true, but it is a part of the Christian understanding of the suffering and evil we face. And here I want to say it now, 
as a preview for Christmas Eve. The Bible's claim is that the life and the lives that we live now, this is not the end of the story, even when our days here end. But rather, Jesus came to give the restoration to the broken world that we find ourselves in that will one day free it from all suffering and pain and anguish so that with joy and freedom and light and life, all who are willing to trust God will be with him forever and receive from him the gift of eternal life, which will make this present suffering seem so small, no matter how great it is, that it's not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. I want to close with this. Imagine the misery and suffering that you face now. And I want you to listen to me. It's not an illusion. Random chance isn't, isn't why there's this me mess of misery. It's most certainly not because God is punishing you. There's all kinds of things in the world that, that God doesn't, uh, that doesn't condone and he wants to see uh, done away with utterly. And his plan, his plan is to redeem and to restore so that one day you personally will be able to, to experience the truth that the glory that is revealed is beyond what you could have ever dared dream or would even imagine today. And let that hope sit in your heart and come back to it. I look forward to the day where you and I can laugh together then. I mean it. And celebrate forever. Uh, so until then, let's pray. God, for the gift of time together to think and to consider, I give you thanks. For the responsibility that is mine in my job to speak like this to friends as well as to people who I don't know, I praise you. I ask very simply that anything good and true that was shared here would lodge in every heart and grow. Grow like the flame grows in the darkness so that light comes. God, we need to be freed. We need to know and grow in our knowledge of the truth. Help us this day and in the days ahead, we pray in Jesus' name.